a little bit of trouble. I wasn't supposed to uh, be singing all the songs, and I thought, well, my voice is good. I can do that. And uh, after halfway through the second song, I said, uh-oh, that wasn't good. <laughs> uh, this morning we're talking about uh, two different healings. <coughs> when I got the call this morning to... Uh, Speak in place of Jared. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. I have trained you well. Um, Andrea sent me an email at uh, 5.34 this morning, which I didn't read until after she phone called, uh, or called on the phone. Anyhow, I began to think, okay, now what can I speak on? And I said, it's got to be something that I've studied recently or that I've been working on recently. And I've been working on the book of Exodus. And I thought, well, it's on prayer, but it wouldn't really fit like I need it to. And the Lord laid this on my heart that um, our little study group has been going through. <clears throat> And it's about the healing of Jairus' daughter and also um, the woman who touched the hem of his garment. And so I thought, well, how appropriate. Here you have a contrast between um, immediate threat of death and something that is a prolonged illness that has gone on for some 12 years, a chronic illness. And uh, our church has really been struggling of late with uh, a lot of sickness, illness, chronic problems, and uh, so on and so forth. And I'm hoping that if you're sitting here today that God will touch your heart and that you will see that the Lord is the answer. Uh, we need healing physically, but we need even more so healing spiritually. And uh, when, when your body hurts, your mind doesn't think like it's supposed to. And I would say to you that also your soul, unless you learn how to focus and keep the pain from disturbing your spirit, you will not be spiritually strong either. And so it's very essential that all of us, I think, learn how to uh, deal with illness in our life. I've never known a mother that was too sick to take care of her family. Somehow or another, in the worst days, Sheila has maybe felt as bad as you can feel, and she's gotten up and made us breakfast, or she's gotten up and done something to help get the kids ready for school or whatever it might be. I think that that's the way that I've always looked at going to the job. I figured, well, I'm going to be sick here and miserable. I might as well be sick there and miserable, and I'd go to work. And uh, I went to work the day that I had my heart attack, and I'm just that kind of a guy. I don't believe that laying in bed is an answer to anything in life. And so no matter how sick I've been, I think it's time to get up and to uh, spend time with God and to try to Work your way through the illness. If it's not an illness unto death and you're really on your deathbed, I think you ought to be moving. Uh, you got life, use it. 
So here we are this morning looking at this contrast in healings. And I hope and pray that uh, the Lord would bless our lesson today. This is a basically a two-part story of the mercy and grace of God to a desperate man with regard to his dying daughter. And I say a two-part story because uh, while going to Jairus's house, Jesus is approached by a woman who is uh, herself in desperate straits with a physical malady that she had lived with for many years. In our study, we will, we will deal with each case separately for the sake of gaining a better understanding of each event. Notice that Jesus is approached by Jairus who begged for him to intercede on behalf of his daughter's life, his daughter's young life. Luke, the physician, says that this young girl was 12 years old and that she was Jairus's only child. I find it interesting when you read the different accounts of the scriptures, uh, the, the uh, synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that it's, it's really a, a wonderful thing to go between them and see the differences that you can find uh, from one author to another. Not differences in the sense of the truth that they tell, but differences in the sense of the observation that the men make. And so we thank you that by the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, our brother Luke, who was a physician, uh, paid attention to the details of her age and also the fact that this was this man's only child. Now, there can be no doubt that Jarius, who was a ruler of the local synagogue in the area there, was not a secret follower of Christ, at least not like Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea was, but one who had heard the claims of the crowds that had gone out to see and hear Jesus, this miracle worker preaching in the Galilean desert. In our story, you will note that the name of Jesus is used and not Christ. So as I'm going through this, I want you to see that there is a reason why I mention the name of Jesus and I do not mention the name of Christ until after the Lord's Spirit works upon the souls of these people, okay? And uh, I hope that you will not be uh, confused by what I'm saying, but that you will be encouraged and that you will see how people look at Jesus and how they recognize the difference between Jesus as a man and seeing him as the Christ of God, the promised Messiah and Savior uh, for us as our God. So, in our story, Jairus came to Jesus as a man from God who was reported to have power from God to heal the sick. This is what Jairus heard. Okay, I want you to think about that. However, there are five different views of Jesus Christ that need to be kept in mind as we go through this lesson, which Jesus did uh, Jairus seek. And I would ask, which view of Jesus do you have? Now, here are the five. Jesus was a mere man. And we see that uh, uh, given to us in the scriptures that... Uh, 
Jesus is a man of flesh and blood, as it were. Jesus was a man sent from God, even as John the Baptist was. That God sent Jesus, as the Father has sent me, so send I you, Jesus said. So, here's another designation. He's a mere man. He is a man sent from God. Jesus was a spiritual teacher. And we remember in the scriptures how he is called rabbi, which is another word for teacher, only Jewish. Jesus was a prophet from God. Some said that he was this prophet, or some said that he was that prophet. They accepted him as being a prophet because of his ability to declare the word of God. And Jesus was the Christ, the Christ of God the promised Son of God, come in the flesh. You remember in the declaration of Christ's birth, it says, you shall call him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And so, indeed, from the very beginning, uh, we see that Jesus Christ has these five particular, if there's more, I'm sorry, I couldn't think of them, but anyhow, there's at least five different views that we can have of Christ. Now, we need to keep that in view as we look at what the scripture says about uh, Jesus as we go through this story. This story becomes a contrast in human sorrow. For Jairus, the tragedy of his daughter's sudden sickness unto death is compared to a woman who has suffered with a physical strain upon her person for 12 years. This story of the woman's suffering may not seem to be as desperate as one who is in the throes of imminent death, but I assure you that when the human condition is complicated and aggravated by one having a destructive, I got your problem, uh, Phil, a destructive chronic condition of health, that circumstance is just as debilitating, unrelenting, and endless to the soul as death itself. Job understood that kind of chronic pain, and he knew what it could do to a person's outlook on life. We find where Job chapter 3, verses 20 and 22, Job declares, Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter of soul? Who long for death, but it does not come, and search for it more than for hidden treasures? Who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave? Boy, you talk about a guy that's having a blue day. There's, there's somebody who uh, really understood uh, being very close to death, but yet not finding any comfort, but just another day of pain. And so... Uh, I just think that it's wonderful for us to be able to realize that uh, some people have this kind of a chronic condition where that their pain really never goes away. And uh, they have to learn how to live with it. I know that that doesn't sound good in a, in a society today that they give you a pill and it makes you happy or they give you a pill and it makes you feel good or they give you a pill and you can you know, go run around the block seven times and your feet won't hurt and your face doesn't hurt and, you know, life is a wonderful thing. But the reality is, is that that is not how God has designed us. 
the reason for pain is so that we can give God glory to stop and think that this is not our eternal home that this is not how life is supposed to be and after all in the book of Revelation it declares to us that he'll wipe away all tears and that all pain will disappear pain and trouble will be no more because in glory those things are the result of sin here on earth and in glory we won't have to battle that battle anymore so it's up to us to understand our need Jairus's young daughter also being 12 years of age was born near the same time that this woman had begun to suffer with the issue of her hemorrhaging blood a likely disease uh, called andrometriosis is perhaps the one that may have caused this gynecological uh, disorder for this woman during her childbearing years. And I find that it's not, it's not accidental, but intended by God that both of these women are dealing with something that deals with the age of 12. One being sick for 12 years and one being sick at the age of 12 years. And uh, I, I don't think it's just happenstance. Uh, God has a, an intended purpose for it. This aspect of her disease is mentioned because the mercy of God is in view for both this young girl and the older woman. Because under Jewish law, she was considered, that is the uh, woman with the issue of blood, she was considered an outcast and unclean by uh, implication of the text um, was that she was unmarried or divorced and we know this because an outcast of uh, as an outcast of society she was seeking Jesus alone this woman's disease was worse than death because she suffered misery and shame note the following facts of our study and it's a simple outline, folks. It's the seeking father and the sensitive savior. First, the seeking father. Now, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was there by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, Jesus, he fell at his feet. And begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hand on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Pressed against him, being in a crowd as they were. Now I want you to stop and think a moment about, uh, there's a lot in this. There's a lot in this that is packed, full of information. Jairus said, I want you to come and put your hand on my daughter. Now, did Jesus need to put his hand on anyone to uh, heal them? No, in fact, we find places where that that was not the case. But Jairus had heard stories of Christ healing others. He's a ruler of a synagogue. He's a spiritual leader of the, of the neighborhood, as it were. And so many people had been out to see Jesus in the desert and had come and had told him the stories of what Jesus could do. Now, you know how it is. Uh, you got a leak on your roof. Who do you ask? 
you ask the people that you know, and they'll say, well, we know somebody that we can recommend to you. Um, they did so-and-so's house, or they did this, or they did that. And so Jarius must have taken the information in that he had heard from the people of his congregation, as it were, and decided that he would try to find healing for his daughter in the miracle worker named Jesus. And so this is what we see happening here, the seeking father. First note that our text states that Jesus had crossed over the Sea of Galilee to the other side. The little words again by boat as it is used in the text seems to indicate that this dangerous trek of crossing the Sea of Galilee at night had once again been completed in order to accommodate the Savior's travel plans. I'll tell you what, being a disciple of Christ was not an easy task. This is about the fourth or fifth time that they have taken the boat and rowed over the Sea of Galilee in the night. That's about a six to eight hour trek, depends on where you're headed. And uh, that doesn't mean they slept, that means that they rowed the boat. <laughs> and they went from one side to the other. And why? Because Jesus, our Lord and Savior, had an appointment with destiny on the other side. And here he comes back. He's coming back. And uh, when he gets to the shore, this is what he's faced with. First is Jairus' daughter. And then finally, as they're traveling, it was the uh, woman who had uh, um, the uh, endometriosis. So this detail of the text helps us understand that they had rowed in an open boat again for five to eight hours to arrive on the other side of the lake, probably near Capernaum, which was uh, called in the scriptures his town. <clears throat> they went back across so that a ruler of the synagogue might be able to find Jesus teaching and healing in this crowd. Remember, there are no accidents with God. Second, note that there is a specific expression that Mark uses in this passage to describe this great crowd of followers that continued to gather around Christ. Mark says that the crowd thronged him. The Greek word used here for throng is, uh, uh, means to press or compress or crowded him on all sides. But here is the key that is uh, uh, to this phrase. They kept on pushing him in the middle of the crowd to a point that Jesus was unable to do anything but stand still and be moved <laughs> by the will of all the people around him. This was a kind of mob rule, uh, in a good sense, I suppose you could take it, but yet nonetheless, he didn't have much to say about where he was going or when he was going. They moved him, he didn't move them. So we find that uh, this kind of mob rule uh, was taking place, but not the kind that one might fear for the circumstance uh, for this circumstance was generated out of the desperation for healing and not anger. Uh, third, note that man's frantic effort to uh, uh, the man's frantic effort to reach Christ. Jairus fell at Jesus' feet and begged him earnestly, or pleaded with him earnestly. You cannot read the dialogue of the text without seeing in your mind's eye 
the total desperation of this father and wonder how he was able to reach Christ under these circumstances of such a crushing throng being around him. How did he make his way through all these people so that he could be at Jesus' feet? Fourth, note that Jairus pleaded his case for his daughter in believing faith. My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hand on her that she may be healed and she will live. It doesn't say she might live or she will live. Uh, she will live. What we know about this man's theology um, of God and his religious affiliation means nothing here. But the measure of his faith is provided by our text in the fact that he believes in the power of Christ to heal his daughter. He made the case that if Christ would but put his hands on this little girl, his little girl, that she would live. Now, again, um, I've been a little inconsistent in the first part of this by using the word Christ because he was looking at Jesus as a mere man, a man sent from God, a man who had power to heal, but he was not the Christ. To Jairus, he was a man who could heal. Now, fifth, note that Jairus is not seeking for anything other than the touch of God upon his daughter. Come and lay your hand on her that she may be healed. Jairus did not rely on his religious training as a Jew or his doctrinal beliefs, but he believed that the God of the scriptures could heal his daughter. We can sometimes get confused as to our system of faith in God. Do we believe in God because we are taught a particular way, or do we have faith because we believe and trust God as being the God of Scripture. I would say to you that there are many people who say they believe in God, and that's even used in the Bible. But you need to believe God. Don't believe in Him, believe Him. It's personal. It is immediate. I believe God. I don't believe about God, I believe God. And we need to be in the same boat, especially when we're seeking an answer for uh, pain or for difficulties in life, uh, for our sin, whatever it may be. Then secondly, the sensitive Savior. Uh, while he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue house and said, your daughter is dead. Now, can you imagine getting this kind of a message in the middle of the process where you're trying to get an answer for? I mean, can't you just see the same kind of a scenario where that a woman has a husband in the hospital and she's talking with the doctor about uh, what they're going to do to try to save his life and another doctor or nurse comes along and say, don't bother, he's dead. Wow. There's not much you can say, is there? There's not much you can do. But notice how Jesus gives answer to this. As soon as Jesus heard the words that were spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do, do not be afraid, only believe. 
and he, and he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw the tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. By the way, that was a common practice among the Jews. The Orientals still practice that kind of wailing and weeping at uh, the death of someone. And when he came in, he said to them, why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed Christ. They ridiculed Jesus. They ridiculed him. But when he had put them all out, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was laying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kami, which is translated little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age. Did you note that they, they repeated that again, as it were? Luke tells it, but so does Mark. Okay, she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it. In other words, don't tell the story of what's gone on here. And said that nothing should be, uh, that something should be given her to eat. And uh, there's several cases in the scriptures where this is the case. The man in, who was in the, uh, the demoniac of the Gadarenes was also told not to follow Jesus, but to go back home and tell them what Jesus had done for him. We are not told of the distance that was needed to be traveled by this throng of followers to reach Jairus' house. But we do know that just when you think that things were finally going to be resolved for this man and his sick child, he receives news that his daughter is dead. There, this is where we need to begin the study of our sensitive Savior. First, Note the kindness and reassurance of Christ's words to this man. As soon as Jesus heard the words of the, uh, that were spoken, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. This was a desperate hour for this man to face. Anyone in this predicament would be overwhelmed by the emotion, emotional loss and the sheer frustration of struggling so hard to save his little girl. Yet here we have the cold, hard facts of the matter. He was too late, and she was dead. Jesus hears the news as well and blurts that cutting message of death, or blunts, rather, that cutting message of death with a measure of hope for this man's soul. Do not be afraid, only believe. What this man believed, and to what extent he trusted the word of Christ, is seen in the fact that they continued to press forward to where the man lived. His faith didn't end when there was supposedly no hope for his daughter. Second, note the thinking of the man's friends about Jesus. Why trouble the teacher any further? This statement reveals a lot about uh, what this friend of the family uh, or relative of the household believed about Jesus. They believed he was what? Not a miracle worker, not the Christ of God, the Son of God, but that he was a teacher. 
And so this is, this is how they react to him. Um, this is quite remarkable in nature because we know from Scripture that this statement means uh, in the context of our story. The Apostle John records the secret visitation at night of Nicodemus with the Savior. In John 3, 1 and 2, it says, There was a, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, uh, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Beloved, this is a great confession for a Pharisee to make concerning Jesus, the man. But in saying this, Nicodemus did not say that Jesus was the Messiah of God. And you need to be careful not to read that into the text. Nicodemus was calling Jesus a teacher from God. And so he's, he certainly elevated Jesus from being just a mere man. But did he see him as a savior? No, not yet. And that's why <laughs> when you read John chapter 3 there about Nicodemus, and he says, unless you, uh, I, I lost the, the, the context, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, Nicodemus didn't understand that at all. You have to have a spiritual birth as well as a physical birth. If I was to ask each one of you today, if you have a spiritual birth, some of you could not say yes. Well, think about what Jesus said. Unless you have been born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Cannot. Impossible. Unless you're saved. You will not see God in glory. Just that simple. And yet we read those words and it buzzes right through our brain and we don't even stop and think that that means me. That's attached to my soul. That means that if I don't have Christ as a savior, not a teacher, not a man sent from God, but as my savior, I will not see the kingdom of heaven. And I think that that's why we need to make it that pointed. Beloved, this is a great confession for a Pharisee to make concerning Jesus, the man. Jesus had power from God, but they did not know that he had the power of God, at least not yet. Third, note the response of the mourners to the spoken words of Jesus. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. Jesus charged their, uh, changed their weeping into joy. But they had no trust in what Jesus told them concerning the young girl. Notice that Jesus allowed this young girl to die, just as he allowed the death of his dear friend Lazarus. Lazarus had to die in order for his death uh, that his death would bring glory to God. See John eleven thirty seven through 43. This young girl was known to be dead by all who were involved with this event, and this fact was necessary to prove 
that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. The fact that she was brought back to life again could only be viewed by these who stood outside of grace as witnesses of a true miracle of God. And I want you to listen to those words, who are standing outside of grace. You remember the people at the cross? You remember the people that saw Christ being beaten? Some in that crowd that saw Jesus go through that pain and suffering said, surely, this truly, this must be the Son of God. Some of them woke up to the reality of what was going on, but the rest of them didn't. And certainly it was none of the Jews who were standing there saying, oh, we have killed the Savior. They didn't see it that way. They were happy to put him to the cross and to put him to death. And I think that many of us, as we look at Christ, we do not stop and think that he's not just a babe in a manger, that he's some kind of a fancy thing on a Christmas card but that he is the son of God and we give him no respect for who he is or what he can do. And so when we're ill, we do not cry out to God and ask that he would heal us. We go to a doctor, we take a pill, we trust in men, we do not trust in God. Let me ask you something. Do you pray for God to heal you after you've tried everything? Or is it the first thing that you do? And then are you willing to allow that as with Paul, who sought the Lord three times to take his, his uh, uh, thorn in the flesh away, are you willing to hear God say, my grace is sufficient, and that you say to yourself, I'll learn to live with this because that's what God wants for me. See, we, we want everything with a pink bow on it. We want it all wrapped up in a nice package. Make it look good. Make it feel good. I want happiness. I want joy. It's not fair. I find no place in the scriptures where it says anything about things being fair. What I find in the scriptures is that God's grace is sufficient for my need. Amen. Fourth, Note the six witnesses to this miracle of life. We are told in this text that Jesus allowed a certain few to be witnesses to, his, to, his, uh, to this resurrection, as it were. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. There were three Jameses in the, uh, in the uh, disciples and, and apostles and so they, they try to make specific mention as to which James they're talking about. By the way, there were also three Judases too. That's why they used other names for them. But only one Judas of, uh, that was uh, uh, the betrayer. And so every time that Judas is mentioned in scripture, they're always careful, the one who betrayed Christ. They want you to know for sure which Judas it was that did that. And so they remind us. And he permitted no one except for Peter, James, and John. He took the father and the mother of the child. Okay, so that's three from the apostles. Jesus Christ himself is four. The mother and the father is six. Okay. And those who were with him and entered where the child was. Those being Peter, James, and John who were with him. So six people are standing around this bed. And Jesus doesn't 
break out the olive oil and put his hands over it and say, heal, heal. Jesus takes her by the hand and he says to her, arise. And she does. Now, there are all kinds of people today who are using uh, the idea of healing power from God as a means to build money out of people. And if you will send them so much money, they call it seed money, and they will say that if, if you give it in faith, that they will then pray over that money and, and uh, that you have sent and your child will be healed or you will be healed or you will be blessed and you'll have riches untold and you'll be driving Cadillacs and Lamborghinis and all kinds of stuff. Folks, they're the ones that are driving the Cadillacs and the Lamborghinis, not you. And what they're saying is not true. For Jesus did not use a formula to heal anyone. Almost every healing instance we find in the scripture is a little different from the others. There wasn't any formula. The power of healing is in Jesus Christ himself. The one case where the blind person, he makes mud, spit, and, and dirt makes mud and puts it on the guy's eyes and he asks him, what can you see? And he says, I see men as trees walking. Well, that's not a very good healing, is it? So he puts a second application on it, and then he can see everything perfectly clear. Now, you never hear anybody say, well, this is a two-part healing process here today. Because they want to show that they have great power with God. And so they should be healed in somehow or another magically. It's supposed to all happen. Well, with Jesus, it wasn't that way. He simply takes her by the hand and says, little girl, arise. There's yet one more thought about the consequences of this miracle that we need to consider. Note that the disciples of Christ are included in the words they were overcome with great emotion or great amazement. Why, brother, with, the, with this bit of information? Why bother? Not brother, but why bother with this bit of information? We need to understand that when Jesus went back to Bethany to resurrect Lazarus from the dead, that there was not one word of doubt mentioned by the disciples about what Christ said he would do. You know, I didn't think about that until I had to read this and deal with it. And then I remembered they, they didn't say, oh, good, we get to go back and raise Lazarus from the dead. But they didn't question what Jesus was going to do. When Jesus finally told them he's not sick, he's dead. You don't hear a word after that. The next thing you hear is that Jesus is standing outside saying, Lazarus, come forth. Uh, how amazing. These were the pillars, Peter, James, and John, of the faith in the church at Jerusalem. And they needed to know the power and majesty of Christ as the Son of God. So they were allowed to see him work this miracle. Then fifth, for fifth, note the change or the charge Christ, the charge of Christ to this man and his family. Jesus commended them strictly that no one should know it. It is important that you understand that Jesus does not speak empty words. The reason that Jesus asked for their silence is twofold. One, Jesus did not want the general public to get worked up over 
what he was able to do or that he was indeed Israel's Messiah because the people had already made comments about making Jesus their king. And he had to get out of Dodge, as it were, to keep them from doing that. It was not his time or his purpose to come to earth to be anointed a king. He is our savior. And he had to suffer and die death on the cross in order to be our savior. It's so important that people understand that Jesus could have, could have called forth 12 legions of angels and he could have had them all do magical stuff in the sky and said, I am God. But then what about the next generation that came along? Who would they believe in? Would he have to come back for that generation and have signs in the sky and have the angels all announce holy, holy, holy and say, I am God? And the next generation and last 2,000 years. But by faith, we can believe that the Christ of the cross is just as powerful today as he was back then. By faith, we believe that. Not because we see something or we audibly hear something, but because the word of God declares it and we believe it. So it's very important that we understand the difference here. John 6, verses 14 and 15 said, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, this is truly the prophet who is come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself. Two, note that the text indicates that there was a need to keep this great miracle secret because the future cross work uh, of the future cross work that lay ahead for our Savior to accomplish. This was not his hour to be revealed as Messiah. John 7, 30 and 31, Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed him in, in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? Well, I have another whole lesson, but guess what? I've run out of time, so we're not going to do that. Maybe at a future date, we'll do the second half of this two-part story. If I could have uh, a moment of silence for you to reflect on what's been said, then we'll end our message with a word, from, with a, uh, a word of prayer. And then we'll have Claire May come back and, and uh, we'll sing a, uh, a song um, of my choice. And uh, <laughs> we'll go home for the day. Please pray for tonight, too. As you notice, my voice healed itself. I'm sure it was because we prayed and asked God to give us clear voice to speak his word. All right, let's bow our heads for a moment of silent prayer. Our God and our Father, as we come before you now,
asking that you would bless the effort this morning of your word going forth, not because men have spoken it, but because your Holy Spirit is the one who can make it resonate in the soul. And Lord, we would be foolish to say that we are not a hurting church right now. We would be foolish not to acknowledge that there are many who are sick and some who are indeed seriously ill. And yet, Lord, we, we can't possibly do anything about most of it except to depend upon your grace and mercy to heal and to unite us again in fellowship around your word. So, Father, we seek your face this morning, asking indeed that you will heal those of our congregation who have been so ill I think especially like Jared, who's prepared so hard to be here to preach, and yet he was so ill he couldn't make it. Why? We don't know. But we trust, Lord, that it's in your hands, and that by your providence and in your, according to your will, you will bless what has gone forth and use it. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us as we sing to, again, continue to reflect on what our life is really for and what our life is about. May we give glory to your name in all that we do and say. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.